I've, I've been listening to this teaching series from um, he's more of an evangelist uh, called Paul Washer. We, he, he's the founder of High Cry, Heart Cry Missionary Society, which we've actually contributed to, uh, to recently. Uh, but I was listening to him do a, a series on First Timothy uh, geared towards pastors. And the whole first hour and 15 minutes, he kept flipping to scripture and says, we'll get to 1 Timothy, I promise. And he kept saying that, and then we never got to 1 Timothy. Well, I just want to give you a heads up. We're not getting to Hebrews 9 today. Uh, the Lord just didn't let me get there. Um, what today is going to be is more of a, let's, let's take a step back before we get into Hebrews 9. Um, and I... I normally don't share the title of the sermon. It's usually on the bulletin, but I want to express it this morning so you kind of get an, a sense. And I've told you many times that I think that Hebrews was a, a sermon, right, that was copied and sent off. And when you look at Hebrews as a sermon, you see a preacher's concern, right? That's that's why he, he's got this big concern in his heart for whoever's going to hear or read his sermon and that's the whole point of what he's doing. And so the title of this sermon is The Preacher's Concern Then and Now. And I want to explain the then and now. The, the, the preacher of Hebrews, he's, he's writing in a time where Jesus had died. He'd been buried. He'd been raised and ascended into heaven. But even after that, as the writer of Hebrews is writing or preaching this sermon, there are still animal sacrifices taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. Now that's something we can't really understand, right? I don't, we, we've not had to deal with animal sacrifice or going back to the old covenant. See, the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince his audience that Jesus is better than the old. That his sacrifice is better than the old. That the place that he entered in is better than the old. That he is a better high priest. So he's saying, don't go back to the old. Because they've also got pressure from other Hebrews, from other Jews in their time to go back. They go, to, they go to him and they're like, you're, you're following someone who died a shameful death on a cross. Come back to come back to Judaism. Come back to the sacrificial system. Come back to the law. Come back home, Hebrews. And the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, "Don't do it." And that was his concern. That was his heart in writing this whole sermon, all 13 chapters. Well, the the sermon is entitled The Preacher's Concern Then and Now. Well, I'm not concerned that you guys are going to start sacrificing animals in your backyard. I just, I'm pretty sure that that's not going to happen. If it is happening, we have to have a talk. Um, but as I was going through this section, because this section, this chapter is full of referencing back to bloody sacrifices delivered to the to the temple or to the holy the most holy place in the tabernacle and if we don't have that concern 
what my concern was as we I looked through this passage is that we don't understand or we've forgotten the need of blood in Christianity. Well, the, 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 the Hebrew preacher wanted them to know how great the new way was. I just want to make sure that the new way hasn't lost its newness or its greatness to us. Um, this passage, Hebrews 9, and so by the way, we're going to do Hebrews 9 tonight. So part two is actually a look at Hebrews 2, and we're going to do that this evening at 6 p.m. This passage is a bedrock for Christianity. It is. It speaks of the security, the sureness of our salvation. It describes the redemption that we have received. And these four or five statements that I found in Hebrews 9 ought to move us. It ought to move us to worship obedience. It ought to move us to worship in faith and in song and in prayer and to just bring us to our knees before Christ. And so I want to make sure that we understand what it means or why a ransom, a redemption that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness or remission or purging of sin. I want us to be sure that when we sing of Jesus paid it all, that our response is a heartfelt exalt, exaltation of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, here, here's, here's the concern. That Christianity, that the better way, the new way, the blood of Christ has lost its newness. We've turned Christianity into a wise decision. A wise decision for our lives, a wise decision for our family members or our friends. And we want everyone to make this wise decision before they die, right? Because that, after that, you're just out of luck. So if we could get everyone to make this decision before they die, we'd be good. We want everyone to give their life to Christ or to accept Jesus into their heart, and the sooner the better. I kind of made it like checking our batteries in our smoke detector. That's kind of how we treat Christianity these days, right? We want to make sure that we've got the assurance that if a fire goes off in our house, something's going to tell us and save us, right? And so every now and then when we hear the beep, we want to make sure that our batteries full. And that's that's sort of how we have treated Christianity. Be wise enough to do that. So you don't want to walk around in your home always concerned that there's going to be a fire and you're not going to know it, right? So we've made Christianity and Jesus and the gospel that insurance of I want to walk around life not worried about when I die I go to hell. That's not Christianity. And that's not why Jesus shed his blood so that you could feel better about living life the way you want and knowing if a truck hits you on the way home, you're just going to end up in heaven. That's not what Jesus shed his blood for. 
so we're going to take a, a trip down history. And you're going to like, Luke, you're just doing a lot of talking. But I want you to understand where we've come from in the last 200 years to get to the point where we are today that we treat Jesus like a smoke detector. Okay, I want us to see this. Um, Christian in Christianity, oh my goodness, Christianity in America, um, since the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, has moved towards this idea of the more people we can get to to make a decision for Christ, the better the church is doing, and we're completing the Great Commission. They want Jesus. They come down for Jesus. Everyone's going to do this. Everyone wants Him. That's great. And in the 1800s, revivalism became a big thing. And what they did in revivalism is they didn't go out and preach the Word and depend upon the power of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit. Is They found methods and gimmicks to draw people down to come and make a decision for Christ. Right? They figured out that if they planted people in the audience to come down when an invitation or an altar call was made, that that would kind of you know, loosen people up. Or, or make a place where people can come down and sit and they can have conversations and we could really put pressure on them to just say that, I want, I want Jesus. We could just get them to do it. That's, in the late, mid to late 1800s is when music really started to take a change and a shift to focus on the emotions of people, to get them stirred up. And so if we could get them emotionally high, they definitely would make a decision for Jesus. And it all became the focus of the more, the better. And that movement made its way into the 20th century. And what you might think of as you know, the big tent meetings or the, the crusades that ended up going all across the world and these stadiums were filled. And you, you, can, you, you might have seen the clips of black and white or just like bare, you know, fuzzy videos of hundreds if not thousands of people come out of stadium seats down to a, a football field and make a decision for Christ after they had heard a sermon and an invitation to Christ. Well, two problems two problems came from that. Number one, pastors, not the evangelists who were going around and doing these crusades or tent meetings or revivals, pastors who were preaching weekly wanted the same results that they were seeing at these big, big crusades and meetings. So what did they start doing? They started implementing all of those things that were creating results. And they started focusing on getting results. And this was early, mid-1900s. They wanted to see people make a decision for Christ no matter how they were able to do it. And they neglected, they neglected that hearing comes by the word of Christ. That faith is a gift of God. That the Spirit gives life. They left the truth for methods and gimmicks for results. But number two, in all of those crusades and tent meetings, and you see thousands of people say, I want Jesus. After the crusade... What happened? They just went home. They just went home. Now, 
Not to say that people weren't genuinely converted at those places. But I heard from I heard from someone who was really high up in the whole crusade m- movement with Billy Graham and, and and not to say anything negative about Billy Graham and his and his ministry. But they knew that the Achilles heel of their ministry was that they were turning immature, at best, immature infants, spiritual infants, over to live by themselves. They had, they, they couldn't. You, a two thousand people come and, and and accept Christ. They didn't. They couldn't send them to a church. They couldn't disciple them in how to study Scripture, how to pray, how to seek Christ in holiness. They just were left to fend for themselves. And if they did end up going to a church, they ended up going to a church that was trying to turn into a tent meeting where the Word of God was neglected. And so this became ever increasing in the mid-1900s and then on into the late 1900s. And ultimately this is where it led. And here's where it gets really, the, the rubber really meets the road. In 2005, there was a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. 2005. It was based on a report, a research project done called the National Study of Youth and Religion. So uh, full disclosure, when that report was done, I was a teenager. Okay, I was a teenager when that was done in the early 2000s. 3,000 teenagers were interviewed. I was not one of them. Full disclosure, okay? 3,000 teenagers were interviewed. And they wanted to know what their religious viewpoints were. And this is, this is the basis of what they received back from that. The biggest overarching thing, to summarize it all, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Now there are four subpoints that came from that. Pay careful, close attention to these four things, and maybe even tell me if they sound familiar. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number two, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number four, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, let's not point fingers at the teenagers of the late 1990s, early 2000s. They had to get it somewhere, right? It had to come from somewhere. And it let's also just not pick on that age, but it is very much continued today. And is very much that those four points are a good way that most Christians in America define Christianity. And it's so sad. You see, churches took a mindset 
that the parents in the churches were saved. And so there's less focus on the parents. And they wanted to focus on the kids. They wanted to make sure that uh, the kids were going to accept Christ and grow up in Christ. And so they, they assumed the parents were Christians and they preached to the parents Sunday by Sunday how they should live their lives, right? The Old Testament tells us, you know, this that we see, and even in the New, this is how you ought to live. And so it became very much parents just live this way and we'll take care of your kids in Sunday school and youth night and all this other stuff. Let's focus on the kids because they're the future. We want to reach the kids so much. We're going to make it so much fun. We're going to make it, all the kids are going to want to come and hear about Jesus because of how much fun it is and how much pizza we get to eat. And then we can make them or help them make a decision with Christ. But we don't want to be too forceful. We don't want to talk too heavily about sin and judgment and God's wrath because you know we want them to want Christ. Let's make them understand all the good things that they can get if they believe Jesus. And this was typical for youth ministry from the 70s up until today. They they named they came up with a title for that viewpoint of religion and it was called and hang with me here moralistic therapeutic deism. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, it's when you think about it, it actually is pretty simple. Deism means there's an acknowledgement that a higher power exists, right? Something is there. There is a God. No specifics, just there is a God. And he's not really in control of things. He's letting things just kind of go as, as, as we please. The moralistic aspect is that a good life is the one that you want to live, right? If there's a right and a wrong, I want to choose the right. That's morally good. And the therapeutic was, if I do all these things, I believe there's a God and I try to live right, good things are going to happen to me. I'm going to feel better about myself. Therapeutic, you go to the spa or the chiropractor for therapeutic help, right? But that's what we seek. That's what a lot in America seek from God is therapy to feel better. Okay? Moral therapeutic Deism. What was missing? Sin, repentance, suffering, prayer, an actual understanding of the God of the Bible, the need for a sacrificial Savior, the Lordship of Christ. The most, the most telling thing that was wrong with moral therapeutic deism or how most people view religion and even Christianity's days is a failure to understand their own depravity. Now, I'm, I'm connecting this to Hebrews 9 now. I want you to understand this. I, we're connecting this to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 is about the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is unnecessary unless you are a wicked sinner against God. We have set aside the fact that apart from the intervention of God, we are rebels, Romans 5. We are enemies, Romans 5, against God, our Creator. 
We've softened the gospel to say, Jesus will help you live right, and you might get something out of it if you just make this decision to follow Christ. That's not what He died for. That's not what He lived for. Here's our uh, here's what our statement of faith says about fallen man. And when I say fallen man, that includes you women too. This is the state of mankind. We believe that man was created in holiness, Adam, right? Under the law of his maker. But Adam voluntarily transgressed by by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state in consequence of which all mankind, all mankind, no exception, are now sinners. Not by constraint, but choice. Here's where it gets even more difficult. Being by nature... So when I say by nature, I mean what's a lion's nature if he sees a deer to attack? What's a deer's nature if they see a lion? run the nature of all mankind is utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God that nature is positively inclined to evil and therefore all sinners all mankind are under just condemnation to eternal ruin Without defense and without excuse. Hebrews 9 makes no sense if you don't believe that. I mean, we might as well not even look at it. We might as well just throw out the scriptures if we don't believe that. What would we think about the Father crushing His Son on the cross if we don't believe the depravity of our nature the world and liberal Christianity says that the death of Christ at the hand of the father is cosmic child abuse if you don't believe in the depth of your sin they're correct if you do not owe your very life to the Creator because of your sin and rebellion against Him, the death of Christ is nothing but cosmic child abuse. But that's not what it was. We, um, if you've paid attention to the news this week, uh, there was a sweeping move by our government to cancel debt. Uh, many Christians or even many Christians who uh, tend to lean towards favoring the current administration wanted to poke at Christianity the Christians who disagreed with what was done by the government this week and say how can we have a problem with the government canceling our debt when the basis of our Belief is on the canceling of debt. There were Christians making that statement. But I want us to understand the difference. 
And if we think that way, we do not get the death of Christ. The death of Christ, let me back up. The forgiveness of sins isn't God doing this. There's sin over there. I'm just going to turn around and not look at it. I don't see the sin. It's not there. Somebody's got to pay for it. Because if God just turned his back to sin and did not punish sin, then he would not be God. He would not be just. He would be wicked. Because God is justice. God is righteousness. And so it wasn't just, I'm going to do a switch of hands and move debt from one place to another and make someone else pay for it. No. I'm going to pay for it, he says. I'm going to send my son. And you're like, well, this, hey, hang on now. Did the son want to do that? Oh, you betcha. Remember we talked last week about the covenant that God made with us through Christ. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had already been in covenant together. They'd already been in covenant together. Just so you make sure that this, you understand this, let's, let's just look at what it says in Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1 for a second. And what I want you to understand is that the, the, the forgiveness of our sin, the payment of our debt, was no afterthought by the Father that was pushed on the Son, but was the plan of a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before the world was created, hear me out, God created the universe, the Son, knowing that what was going to be created was going to cause him to take on flesh and die. It was no plan B. It was no afterthought. They were in cahoots for their own glory to redeem sinners by the blood of the Son of God made flesh. Look at it. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. But we're not, right? We're not. But in Christ we can be made holy and blameless. In love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose, the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, not in plan B, because Adam messed it up, so he had to go figure out something else. But no, in all of his wisdom, and all of his insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, 
Who did he set it forth in? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The only way of salvation, of redemption, is to be covered by the blood of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You cannot go out these doors and say, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better mom. I'm going to be a better neighbor. I'm going to do all these things to please God. And what did we learn this morning in Sunday school? You cannot please God apart from faith. Faith in who? A faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, who shed his blood for you. No amount of moral living will guarantee your way to heaven. No amount of church going will guarantee your way to heaven. No matter how many Bibles you have at your house or how many Hobby Lobby signs you have up in your house. It, nothing. It's as filthy rags. You need to be cleansed. You need to be covered by the, Lord, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be... Is the, this word is intense. You need to be purged. You need to be purified. Because one drop of poison ruins the whole well, right? I keep saying this as we've gone through Hebrews. You need to be covered by the righteous, perfect, cleansing blood of Christ. And this is, this is the theme of Hebrews 9 and even into Hebrews 10. This is what it's all about. The powerful, effective sacrifice of the blood of Christ. Powerful, effective, and eternal. But if your outlook reflects more of this moral therapeutic deism then the blood of Christ is just a smoke detector. It's just a good battery. Do you know that the average baptism for a typical good Baptist in their lifetime is 2.7? In America, the average Baptist gets baptized 2.7 times. Do you know what that is? They've checked their battery 2.7 times in their smoke detector. They're living their life, and that beep goes off. They hear a little bit of truth from the Scripture, and they're like, oh, I better make sure my battery's packed so I'm going to go to heaven. And it might take different forms. It might take coming down to the altar and giving a, um, what do they call them? Huh? Rededication. It might, it, it, it might be all these other things, and it's just, it's just simply, it's just hocus pocus. It's just... Uh, Trying to think of the word. Superstition. Hocus pocus, yeah. So preachers dunk them 2.7 times, and every time they dunk them, they say, You're safe. You're safe. 
give them eternal security when there might be the reality that they have none because they have not been covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. Neglecting the power in the blood. Neglecting the power of the cross. The security that comes from knowing the Son of God descended, took on flesh, and paid the ransom, paid the debt for our sin. Our sin against God. And we're going to sing this this morning the power of the cross as we finish. But here's what I want us to understand as we think and move and go home and read Hebrews 9 today. Do it. I challenge you. 30, 45 minutes. Read Hebrews 9. And look for this theme. But as we think about the blood of Christ being applied to us, two things happen. When the, more than two things happen. But there's two things that happen that I want you to know when the blood of Christ is applied to you. When you actually receive forgiveness of sin. Two things happen. And we've actually talked about them in our Seeking to Set Forth Christ series. Number one, a change of affection, a change of desire, a redirection of your love. And what is it towards? Christ. Christ. Number two, a change in your mind, a change in your will. And what is it for? To love others, right? To live for the sake of Christ by loving others. So before we get to Hebrews 9 tonight, I just have two, two quick passages I want to read from the Gospels, okay? Just two quick ones so we can see the effect of of the forgiveness of sin from the words of Jesus. All right. So the first one, Luke 7. You're like, oh, he's finally getting to the Bible. Luke 7. Start at 36. So this is this is um, an account that happened to, to Jesus. And... I won't comment on the whole thing. Basically, we're going to read the read the account to know what's going on to get to the end and see what Jesus has to say. Luke 7, starting in 36, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So remember, we're thinking forgiveness of sin and what that means, what that does. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, the woman of the city, who was a sinner, important word there, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Remember, he thought that. And Jesus answered him, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. You know that he's like, 
he's got to be a little concerned now. He's just had this thought, and Jesus is like, all right, Simon, listen up. Verse 41. A certain... Okay, so now Jesus is going to tell him a parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. Debtors. That's language we're talking about. Forgiveness, right? Debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Which one's more? 500 or 50? 500, right? When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Simon answered... Oh, I'm sorry. Now Jesus asked him, Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to, the, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. So here's what I want you to see here. The one who had been forgiven much, many, truly was aware of how deep her sin was. And the deeper she realized her sin, the greater she realized the forgiveness. And the more she realized that she had been forgiven, she loved him all the more. And do you know the difference when we talk in Sunday school about true worship? It's worship that comes from this reality. The reality that you have been saved from the depths of hell. That you have been called out of the grave. That your sin had made you and was keeping you a child of wrath. But in God's great mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, he found, it, he found it good to crush His own Son, to bring you alive, to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. For what? What did you do? Absolutely nothing but be a sinner. That's it. And she kissed His feet and she wiped His, uh, his, his feet with her hair in tears. That's, that's the worship we want. We want to come in here at the feet of Jesus because we know what we were and who He has made us. We don't come here because we're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to make Him happy. We come here because in our unrighteous state, He made Himself sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. He became cursed so that we could be blessed. This should draw us to the feet of Christ. In tears and weeping. 
And this is what my concern is, is that we understand our need because if we don't, Hebrews 9 means nothing to us. The blood of Christ means nothing to us. So I want us to think and consider to call. If you don't, if you've never prayed, you've never called out to God, here's what David said. He just said, God, search me, know me, and show me the, the grievous, the wickedness within me. And then the tax collector, the sinner, right? What did he say? He just said, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve because I deserve what? Death. Have mercy on me, O God, and let me live. And we find life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we come back tonight, I want you to see. I want you to see the power, the effect and the eternality of the blood of Christ that has been poured on the saints, on those whom He has called, as He says in Hebrews 9. And those whom He has poured out His blood on, it says at the end of Hebrews 9, that He's coming back. He's coming back, not to deal with sin again, but He's coming back to to receive and to save completely those who are right now eagerly waiting for His return. What are you waiting? What are you so eager about today? Are you eager to get lunch? I mean, understandably, it smells good right now. Are we living our lives longing for the One who has shed His blood for the sake of our debt? Do we long to see Him face to face? Do we long for that day where all sin is gone? Where we stand before, not only do we call Him the bloody lamb, but we call Him the conquering lion. And one day, through faith, to get us to that day, we will see Him. And we will be like Him. All because... He shed His blood to pay our debt. There's many more things we can talk about and say, but I just want us to finish there. And I want you to understand that the blood of Christ is offered to you. And you can receive it by faith and repentance of your sin. And you can lay at the feet of Jesus and worship Him and give thanks with your own tears. Let's pray. Father, would You be glorified in our understanding? Would You help us to see more the depth of our need of Christ? God, would You would you use the truth that we have heard today? Would You even take into account the things that we look back in history? And God, would You lead us into righteousness and lead us into right worship and lead us into obedience. Would you apply the blood of your Son to those whom are hearing for the first time their true need of redemption? And then in all of that, be glorified as the King of kings and the Lord of lords.
Let us live, Father, in the power of the cross of the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.